This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. Women with BRCA1 and 2 genetic variants are known to have a much higher lifetime risk of breast and ovarian cancer. These genetic variants are hereditary, and some women are aware of their family history, but other women are not. Who should undergo genetic testing? What should be done once a woman is found to have a BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant? I'm Dr. Maniza Walji, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm speaking with one of the authors of a review article on the management of ovarian cancer risk in women with BRCA1 and 2 variants. The article is published in the CMAJ. Dr. Melissa Walker is joining me now from Toronto to discuss the topic. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's begin with introductions. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and about yourself? So my name is Melissa Walker. I'm a PGY5 in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. And I have a special interest in the management of women with BRCA1 and 2 genetic uh, variants. So as you quoted in your article, ovarian cancer has the highest mortality of all female reproductive cancers. What is it about ovarian cancer in particular that makes it so difficult to diagnose at an early stage? So there are a few things about ovarian cancer that likely contribute to its high mortality rate. The first is that there really is no reliable screening test to detect ovarian cancer. So we rely heavily on identification of women at high risk based on family history and on patients who present with symptoms that are concerning. The second is that these symptoms are often very vague. They can include pelvic or abdominal pain, bloating, early satiety, urinary urgency or frequency, or constitutional symptoms. But these are very nonspecific and overlap with a number of other conditions. And third, many patients are diagnosed at advanced stage, which is associated with a significantly worse prognosis. And it's likely the combination of all of these things uh, that lead to ovarian cancer's high mortality rate. Some women are at higher risk of ovarian cancer and also breast cancer because they have a BRCA1 or 2 genetic variant. What are the BRCA1 and 2 variants? So BRCA1 and 2 genes encode for tumor suppressor proteins that help to maintain DNA integrity. Germline pathogenic variants are inherited mutations that disrupt the function of these tumor suppressor proteins and therefore greatly increase the lifetime risk of developing breast and ovarian cancers. This is different from non-pathogenic variants. These are genetic mutations that do not disrupt the function of the BRCA1 or 2 proteins and therefore are not associated with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes. So in women who have one of these variants, how much does it increase the risk of breast or ovarian cancer? For women with a BRCA1 pathogenic variant, the lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer is as high as 44%, and for breast cancer in the range of 72%. For women with a BRCA2 pathogenic variant, the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer is as high as 17%, and for breast cancer in the range of 69%. So these are not negligible numbers when we're talking about women who are at increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer. 
how do physicians determine who should undergo genetic testing for BRCA1 and 2 variants? So this can be confusing for clinicians because the criteria for genetic testing for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndromes like BRCA vary by province. And while there is no national screening guideline detailing who qualifies for genetic testing, uh, there is a National Comprehensive Cancer Network general recommendation that we can follow that can guide identification of families who would uh, meet criteria for BRCA1 and 2 screening. This, for example, would include women with a family history of a known BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant, women with a personal history of ovarian cancer. And this is regardless of family history, because we know that in 40% of women with a high-grade ovarian cancer, uh, they actually have no family history suggestive of um, a hereditary syndrome. It would also include women with a personal history of breast cancer who either have an early diagnosis, so before age 45, or strong family history of other BRCA-associated cancers, such as uh, male breast cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. Really, in general, if there's concern based on family history, referral to a genetic counselor to discuss next steps is strongly encouraged. Genetic counselors can also provide guidance given the complexity of genetic testing and its implications for other family members. How do we know who might be at risk and who might be likely to have these variants? Individuals at highest risk to harbor a BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant include those with a personal history or a strong family history of breast and or ovarian cancer. Women with high-grade epithelial cancer or families with male breast cancer, breast cancer diagnosed at a young age, and multiple affected family members are also concerning and warrant further investigation. In addition, the risk of BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant is also higher in certain ethnic populations. For example, while the prevalence in the general population is in the range of 1 in 400 to 1 in 800, this is as common as 1 in 40 in women of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. Other high-risk populations include French Canadians uh, and Icelandic, Dutch, Swedish, Norwegian, German, French, and Spanish families. And knowing this, how do we screen for ovarian cancer then in these populations? So this is a great question. Unfortunately, we don't have a screen for ovarian cancer. If we look at, at the general population, there are large, high-quality randomized control trials that have really found no survival benefit for screening for ovarian cancer. Uh, the U.S. Prostate, Lung, Colorectal, and Ovarian Cancer Study, and the UK Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening Study together randomized almost 280,000 average-risk women, and they looked at screening with CA125, which is a blood test, and a transvaginal ultrasound. They found no effect of screening on mortality, and a third of women had unnecessary surgery from a false positive screen. When we look at the high-risk population, so this would include women with the BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant, several very large prospective studies have found no effective screening on ovarian cancer mortality. There was a large phase two multi-center prospective uh, study called the UK Familial Ovarian Cancer Screening Study. And this screened over 4,300 high-risk women with an algorithm called the Risk of Ovarian Cancer Algorithm or ROCA screening tool. This is a type of interpretation using the CA125 blood test every four months combined with findings on an annual transvaginal ultrasound. 
Similarly, another study called the Modena study prospectively screened 661 women with the BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant using, again, the CA125 blood test and a transvaginal ultrasound every six months. And unfortunately, although screening in both studies was associated with earlier stage disease diagnosis, it did not translate into a reduction of ovarian cancer mortality. Likely part of the problem is that the the pathogenesis of high-grade ovarian cancer is that the malignant cells are shed from the fallopian tube embryo into the abdominal pelvic cavity. And this leads to rapid progression between screening intervals that precludes the development of an effective screening strategy. So if I'm a physician and I've determined that my patient is a BRCA1 or BRCA2 variant, what can I do to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer? So the gold standard for risk reduction of ovarian cancer is a bilateral salpinga oophorectomy, so removing both tubes and ovaries at age 35 to 40 in women with BRCA1 and 40 to 45 in women with BRCA2. But there are obviously significant implications of this, particularly with respect to fertility and to the development of surgical menopause, given that most women are premenopausal at the recommended target age. If a woman presents before the target age, seeking risk reduction, she can consider a bilateral salpingectomy, so just removing the tubes, with a delayed oophorectomy once she reaches the target age. And this recommendation is based on data that suggests that high-grade ovarian cancer originates in the fimbria of the fallopian tube. As an alternative strategy, further delaying the oophorectomy until the average age of menopause, which is 51 in Canada, is an appealing alternative because it would prevent the negative health outcomes associated with premature surgical menopause, such as cardiovascular disease and effects on bone health and cognitive function. However, the degree of risk reduction obtained with this strategy is not currently known. Uh, there are studies currently underway to answer this question, but for now, a risk-reducing bilateral salpingo oophorectomy at the target age remains the gold standard. And how effective are these surgeries at actually reducing the risk of ovarian cancer for patients? So a risk-reducing salpingo oophorectomy reduces the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer by about 80%. In a recent Cochrane review of over 8,000 women with a BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant, uh, a risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy reduced all-cause mortality, ovarian cancer mortality, and breast cancer mortality. There is a persistent risk of primary peritoneal cancer in the range of 4% for BRCA1 and 2% for BRCA2. In your article, you also mentioned some guidance with respect to contraception and fertility for these patients. Does hormonal contraception affect the risk of cancer in patients with BRCA1 and BRCA2? And if so, what should they use as alternatives for contraception? So this is a really important question because both patients and their care providers are understandably concerned regarding the use of hormonal contraception in this population. And now women are finding out about their carrier status sooner in their reproductive lives. We know from big studies that combined hormonal contraceptives have been shown to substantially reduce the risk of ovarian cancer by 40 to 50% in the general population and in women with BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variants. A large meta-analysis with 14 included studies showed a 42% risk reduction for ovarian cancer with the use of combined hormonal contraceptives in women with BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variants with no statistically significant increased risk of breast cancer. Although the data in the literature is limited for progestin-only preparations like Micronor, Depo-Provera, or the Mirena IUD, these are also likely safe. If we review the data on the general population, 
so average risk women. A recent large prospective study published in the New England Journal of almost 1.8 million women followed for a mean of 11 years found that the use of progestin-only contraception was associated with a relative risk of breast cancer of 1.21 in those women who chose the Mirena IUD. But this really translates to one additional breast cancer for every 6,666 women using the Mirena IUD for one year. If we extrapolate this data to the high-risk population, it is unlikely that this very small increased risk of breast cancer uh, would be clinically significant given that the population already has a baseline risk of breast cancer in the range of 70%. So it is a complicated issue, but we uh, do encourage women to um, use combined hormonal contraceptives if they have no contraindications to estrogen. So for women who now have surgical menopause, how can symptoms be safely managed uh, in these patients who have BRCA1 and 2 variants? When deciding on the use of hormone replacement in this population, really the most important point is whether the patient has a personal history of breast cancer. In women without a personal history of breast cancer, a large meta-analysis of 1,100 women with the BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variant who underwent a risk-reducing salpinga oophorectomy found no increased risk of breast cancer with the use of hormone replacement therapy. Therefore, in women without a personal history of breast cancer, hormone replacement therapy is safely recommended up until the natural age of menopause, which is 51 in Canada. For women with a personal history of breast cancer, hormone replacement therapy has been shown to increase the risk of breast cancer recurrence and therefore is not recommended. For this group of women, however, non-hormonal options, including SNRIs, SSRIs, gabapentin, clonidine, and oxybutynin can be used. We also recommend referral to a menopause specialist in this group. It's important to note, however, that as per the North American Menopause Society position statement, low-dose vaginal estrin can safely be used in this population for the treatment of genitourinary syndrome of menopause if non-hormonal options have failed after consultation with the patient's oncologist. Great. And is there anything else you'd want to share with readers uh, that you feel we haven't addressed while talking about your article? Women with germline BRCA1 and 2 pathogenic variants have unique and very broad medical needs requiring care from multiple specialists. This includes minimally invasive surgical gynecologists, gynecologic oncologists, geneticists, menopause specialists, fertility specialists, social work, among many others. So they are very at, they are certainly at risk of fragmented care. We recommend where available that these patients are referred to a multidisciplinary clinic to aid in streamlining and coordinating care. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Melissa Walker, a fifth-year resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She currently works at Women's College Hospital in the Preventative Ovarian Cancer Clinic in Toronto, Ontario. To read the review article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or any podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Manisa Walji, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>